The scripture for this morning's sermon is from 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's bow before the Lord and pray for our time in the Word. Our God, I thank you so much for the time of worship that we have just enjoyed, and I thank you so much for the fact that you are the holy God who blesses us and keeps us and makes your face to shine upon us. I thank you that you are the God who is seated upon your throne and in absolute control of all things and at all times, and I pray that you would help us today to lift our eyes up from ourselves and from our circumstances and to fix them upon you. I pray that you would help us to see as you would see so that we would live as we ought to live by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name. Oh, Father, please help us. And now that we turn our attention, Father, to talk about the upbuilding of the church and specifically the place of deacons in the life of the church, I pray that you would help us to understand your will and to understand your purposes I pray that we would willingly submit ourselves to the things that you want for your church, both here and around the world. And I pray, Father, that as our purposes and our structures come into line with your purposes and your structures, Father, I pray that you would cause us to bear much fruit. So for what you will do this morning, for what you will do in the days to come, we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen. We're returning to our little mini-series today called Growing Up Into Christ, and by now, you know that the title of the series comes from a phrase in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul talks about growing up into Christ. The point of this series is to help us to renew our vision of what God thinks of when he thinks of the church so that we can align our purposes with his, so that we can focus on the things that he wants us to focus on. Real fruitfulness and meaningfulness in life comes from aligning our purposes with God's purposes. When our purposes get out of whack with God's purposes, we might be able to succeed in certain things, but we won't bear any fruit that lasts. So whether we're talking about your individual walk with the Lord or your family or our life as a church, I'm telling you, the secret of walking and bearing fruit in Christ is aligning our purposes with his purposes. And that's what this series is about. We want to take a break from our normal habit of working through books of the Bible and just get our eyes on some things that the Lord wants us to get our eyes upon. And so we began by looking at Ephesians 4, and then we went to uh, Colossians 3 and John 15, and we talked about the place of the Word in the life of the church. We talked about the call to be rich in the Word of Christ and to call upon the name of Christ according to His Word, and we saw that people who are rich in the Word and constant in prayer are people that bear fruit. In fact, that is the singular way that Christian people bear fruit. 
as we're rich in the word, saturated in the wisdom of God and begin to learn to pray to him on the basis of his word and of his wisdom, well, things begin to happen and fruit begins to be born. And whatever happens to us as a church in the future, at heart, that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a people who bear fruit by being rich in the word and constant in prayer. A few weeks ago, we turned our attention to the issue of leadership in the local church because Paul raises this issue in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, he's trying to help us see that when the church of God is structured according to the will of God, we end up growing up into the fullness of Christ. As it is with the family, so it is with the church. God has a will for the structure, the leadership, the functioning of our families, and for the structure, leadership, and functioning of the church. And again, Things begin to happen when we align our purposes with God's purposes. And so we spent two weeks talking about eldership, laying a vision for that and calling on certain men to rise up and take on the role of eldership in 2020. And today I want to turn our attention to the second normal office in the life of the church, that is the office of deacon, and talk about what that is. Now when I say normal office in the life of the church, what I'm saying is that in Ephesians 5, Paul lists four offices for us there, that of apostle, of evangelist, uh, um, prophet, and then pastor, teacher. In 1 Timothy 3, he adds a fifth one, that of deacon. So the apostles are still functioning in the life of the church today. In fact, as we go to the words that the apostle Paul wrote, he is very much exercising authority in our midst today. And there, are a pl- there is a place for evangelists and prophets in the life of the church as well. But when we're talking about the normal functioning of the church, there are two primary offices. One is elder and the other is deacon. And so again, we've already talked about eldership. And today I want to talk about what deacons are and what they do. So we'll begin by answering that question, what is a deacon? And then we'll talk a little bit about what they do. And then we'll spend a little time in prayer together that God will work among us and raise some of us up to serve as deacons. Our word deacon in English is a strange word outside the life of the church because outside the church, the word is not used as far as I know. The reason that is is because it comes directly from Greek untranslated. So it is what they call transliterated, where you just take the letters of a foreign word and transliterate it into your language. So the the Greek word is diakonos, and you can hear our word deacon comes directly from that. But at heart, what this word referred to in ancient times was the role of a person who carried out the commands of a superior. And because that's true, the word came to be used of a servant or of an assistant or even of, uh, of domestic helpers. So when you think deacon, you should think servant. You should think of someone whose task it is to carry out the will of another under their authority. In time, in the Greek world, this word came to be used of people who would serve the priests in the pag- pagan temples of Greece and of the Grecian Empire, and later of the Roman Empire. And because of that, the word deacon took on a religious connotation, which is most likely why the New Testament authors grabbed that word from the larger culture to talk about this unique role within the life of the church. So to put it as simply as I can, deacons are servants who work for the glory of God and the common good by attending to the needs of the church under the authority of the elders. Deacons are servants who serve the Lord and serve the people of God by attending to some of the needs of the church under the authority of the elders. When you think deacon, um, think servant, and you won't be 
far off from the meaning of what this office is about. Now, more has to be said, because this does not mean that deacons are inferior to elders or that deacons are inferior to anybody else in the life of the church. In fact, what it means is that they are men and women who are filled with the Spirit of Christ and therefore have a heart of servanthood inside of them. And this heart of servanthood began with Jesus himself, and it has trickled down to us all the way down to our day, and it will last forevermore, this essential spirit of a deacon. Let me explain to you what I mean. When Jesus was speaking of himself in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to what? To serve and not to be served, right? The word for serve there is the same as the word for deacon. Essentially, Jesus came to be a deacon of God, to serve the purposes of God in the world, to lay down his life as a ransom for many, to do whatever he had to do to fulfill the purposes of God for his life and his church on this earth. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, Paul calls Jesus a deacon. Let me read the text to you. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. In the Greek, that's the word deacon. He became a deacon. To the circumcised, that is to the Jews, in order to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, Jesus Christ came as a servant of the purposes of God to the Jews and to all the nations of the, of the earth. Now, this does not mean that he held the office of a deacon in the life of the church. It means that he had the spirit of service inside of his heart. It means that no matter how high a place Christ occupies, in his heart he is humble. And beloved, this ought to stun us because he is God. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. Jesus is the one who upholds all things, even right this second, by nothing more than the word of his power. And his heart is humble. He is not ashamed to come in the form of a servant. He is not ashamed to proclaim himself as a servant of the Father and of the purposes of the Father in the world. It's simply a stunning and beautiful vision, beloved, that our Savior is so high and yet he is also so humble. And so as an overflow of his own spirit, as an overflow of his way of life, he then taught his disciples words that you'll be familiar with. But I want you to hear that the word deacon is actually in here. He said, those of you who want to be great, here's what you need to be. You need to be a servant. That is the Greek word deacon. You need to have the spirit of a servant inside your heart. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Don't clamor for power and position. Clamor by the Spirit of God to serve God and his people. Be a servant. And if you want to be the greatest, Jesus said, then be a slave of all. He's trying to teach them the spirit of servanthood. He's not appointing all of them to the office of deacon. He's saying that in whatever you do, be a servant of the purposes of God. Be a servant of the people of God. In some way, we could say that all the people of God are deacons before God, and each of us plays our unique role. But all of us, like our Savior, and as a reflection of our Savior, have the spirit of service in our heart. We have this spirit to be a, a river and not a reservoir, to be a giver and not just a, a taker. We have a heart to minister to others and not just be ministered to. We have a heart to love and not just to be loved. And this isn't because we're of higher character than anybody else on the earth it's because Jesus Christ is at work in us, freeing us from self-centeredness, 
freeing us from self-obsession, freeing us up to the service of God, to the work of God. Let me put it to you this way. Every position in the life of the church ought to have the disposition of servanthood about it. Please hear that. Every position in the life of the church, no matter what it is, even all the way up to Jesus Christ himself, ought to have the disposition of servanthood about it. Peter said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This is what our Father wants. He wants a humble spirit of service in all of us. For this reason, the Apostle Paul called himself and his fellow workers who were proclaiming the gospel in the world, suffering for the sake of the gospel, planting churches, appointing leaders, all the things they were doing. He referred to himself and his fellow workers as deacons nine times. It was not just a one-off verse that he wrote here or there. Nine times he referred to them as the deacons of God. Again, this does not mean that all of them were appointed to the office of deacon in the church. It means that the heart of servanthood was in them. As far as office goes, Paul is an apostle. And as far as, as functional offices go, at times Paul served as the local pastor of this church and then that church. He was at Ephesus the longest, but for a while until he could establish leadership, he functioned as the elder of a number of churches. Paul never served in the office of deacon, but he had the spirit of a deacon about him. And I'm praying with all my heart this morning that above all things, we'll get that. No matter what your position in the church, let us all have the disposition of servanthood. Let us all have the disposition to lay down our lives for the glory of God and the common good. With this Christ-like disposition in mind, the actual office of deacon in the life of the church arose and emerged in the midst of a crisis. So if you'll keep your finger in 1 Timothy and turn back with me to Acts chapter 6, I want to just read a few verses there with you and like you to see these verses for yourself and maybe be able to go back and meditate on them on your own later. There was a pastoral crisis that arose in the life of the church. The church brought this to the apostles and here is what happened. Now in these days, this is Acts 6.1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So let me pause there for a second and explain. The Jews in former times had been exiled around the world. And so you had Jewish communities that grew up all over the world. You had Jewish people who were Greek-speaking people and grew up not in Israel, but somewhere else. Some of them became believers when they went to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. These were the Hellenists. They're not Gentiles, they're Jewish believers who were Greek speakers. Then you had other Jews who grew up in Jerusalem or grew up in Israel grew up speaking Aramaic, probably knew Hebrew. They were, in a sense, more culturally Jewish in, in that way. And there was, just socially speaking, outside the church, there was a, a rift between the Jews who grew up in Israel and the Jews who grew up elsewhere. There was a little bit of a superiority complex among those who grew up in Israel. These were the Hebrews. They're Greek-speaking Jews. And now what's in mind here, though, is those who actually came to Christ so there are some Jews from abroad, there are some Jews from Israel who come to Christ, and now they're in this huge church together. 3,000 men plus women and children come to Christ in a single day, and then a, another outpouring of the Spirit came just a few days later, and another couple thousand people were added to the church. This church is massive. You've got Hellenists and you've got Hebrews together in one place, and there's a problem. And here was the problem. The widows of the Hellenists, the ones who grew up away from Israel, 
were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, the church was helping widows with food and practical things, and the Hellenists felt like they were being neglected. So the 12 apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples, the entire church, and they said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. That is a verbal form of the word deacon right there. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. There, these, they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. So again, there's a serious problem in the life of the church. There's a rift starting to happen, and this is bad, bad news, because Jesus said in John 13 that we're supposed to love one another as he loved himself and laid down his life for us. But rather than doing that, the church is fighting over practical things, food and, you know, good, daily goods that they needed to live their lives. Uh, apostles could not let this continue, and yet they were so wise to understand that if they stopped doing what they were doing to get involved in the details of this situation, not only were they going to be distracted, but the whole church was going to end up going astray because the captains of the ship, so to speak, have to keep their eyes on prayer the ministry of the word, and also the governance of the church. They simply must do that. And if anything takes their eyes off of these three things, the church is bound to be floating out in the middle of the sea. The apostles did not think themselves above the tasks at hand. When they said we can't stop to, to wait on tables, we can't stop to be deacons, they were not saying we're better than that, we're above this. Positionally, we've risen above that level. They were not saying that. They were simply saying, God has given us a holy calling, and we must focus on that calling. So let's pray that God will raise others up to attend to these needs so that we can be free to attend to the things that God has called us to do, and together we will grow up into Christ, because together we will serve God and his purposes well. And that's exactly what happened. By God's grace, seven men were appointed they freed the apostles to pray, teach, and govern the affairs of the church, and they sought to this very real, serious, and practical need. The need was meaningful. The pain involved, the difficulty, the tensions involved were real, and those things were met by raising up deacons. And you'll see in verse 7 there, what was the outcome of it? It says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests in Jerusalem became obedient to the faith. That probably means some of the guys who voted guilty for Jesus to be crucified came to faith right here in Acts chapter 6, which is pretty stunning. Beloved, deacons are not less than apostles. They're not less than elders of a church. They're not less than anybody. They're simply people who rise up to serve the purposes of God and the good of the church by releasing the elders to do what they're called to do, pray, teach, and govern. They work under the authority of the elders and in concert with the elders in order to further the purposes of God in the church and advance the gospel in the world. This is their heart. They're not looking for attention. They're not looking for recognition. They simply want to serve the Lord. 
for the glory of his name and the common good. So with that in mind, let's talk for a few minutes now about what God requires of deacons. So if you'll turn back to 1 Timothy 3. I'm not going to read that whole passage with you again. I would encourage you to read it on your own and really contemplate what's there. But I do want to summarize some things that are there and spend a couple minutes talking with you about verse 11, which we really need to try to get some understanding about. But if you look at verses 8 through 13, you'll see there that God lists five character-related qualifications for deacons and two family-related uh, uh, characteristics or qualifications there. So on the one hand, it says that a deacon must be dignified. In other words, they need to be somebody who has a good reputation. They need to not be double-tongued, but be a, a straight talker. You don't want deacons who are going to use their words to slander or to manipulate or any such thing. They cannot be addicted to wine, and we can say in our time, or, or to just substances in general. This doesn't mean that they're not allowed to drink anything at all. It says that they're not allowed to be addicted to wine, and that, I think the reason for that is pretty obvious. If you're going to lead people, you need to have a, a sober mind, literally a sober mind. You need to be able to think clearly. They need to not be greedy or financially conniving. They can't just be out to get stuff. They cannot be a, a lover of money, as Paul says elsewhere. And finally, they have to be confident in the truth of the gospel. They have to be people who are firm in their faith, who know what they believe, who know why they believe, and who know what it means to walk with Jesus um, day by day by day. In addition to this, deacons must be faithful to their spouses, and they must manage their household well, just as it is with elders. The main proving ground of deacons is the home. And if you think about this, it just makes sense. It's just common sense. If a person can serve the purposes of God among a few people, then they can serve the purposes of God among a larger group of people. If they're incapable of serving the purposes of God among a few, they will not be able to serve the purposes of God among many. Who you are in your home is eventually going to come out in public. You might be able to hide it for a while, but eventually who you really are is going to come out. And so how wise is our God and Savior to say the testing ground shall be the home? The testing ground shall be the place where this person is as close as possible to others. And as I said when we were talking about elders, this doesn't mean that deacons are perfect people. Far from it. This means that they know what it means to live by the gospel. Every deacon's home, every elder's home is filled with imperfections. Of course, what do you do with your imperfections? That's the question. Do you take these things to God? Do you live by the gospel? Or do you hide? Do you put on a face? Do you play the hypocrite? The true testing ground for leadership in the church is leadership in the home. All right, this brings us to verse 11, and we're going to need to spend a little time here. And I'm going to have to bend your brain and talk to you a little bit about Greek stuff because there's some issues with verse 11 that I think we really need to understand. Um, some translations, the ESV, the KJV, the New King James Version, they translate this verse in such a way as to make it seem like the, in verse 11, the wives of deacons are what is being addressed in verse 11. But actually in the Greek, the, the word there for wives can also just be translated women. And it's not clear at all in the Greek text that we're talking about the wives of deacons at all. So in the ESV, they have made a choice that the word wives should be translated that way. And they've added a word, the word there, their wives. This makes it sound like Paul is now in verse 11 addressing the wives of deacons. But the Greek text doesn't have the word there at all. It just says, likewise, women. Here's how the Greek text literally reads. It says, likewise, 
or in the same way, women must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. So what I'm trying to help us see is that the ESV and some other translations have actually made an interpretive decision by translating that word wives. I think they should just translate it women and let us decide for ourselves what, what Paul is, is doing, but they didn't. And I understand why they did that, but I think it makes much more sense to read this as women and to actually understand Paul as now addressing women deacons and not simply the wives of male deacons. There are people, scholars and pastors alike, who disagree with this position, but there are many who take the same position. So I'm not going out on a limb. Glory of Christ has held this position for many years. This is not a new position for us. I'm not sure I've ever really taken the time to explain it in a sermon, but this has been our position for a long time, and it is the position of scholars and pastors like Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner is a scholar at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and he's a pastor of a church in that area. He used to be at Bethel Seminary. He was an elder at Bethlehem Baptist Church. I knew him way back then when he was there. He makes four arguments for why we ought to understand this as referring not only to women in general, but actually to women deacons. And here are, here's what he puts out as evidence. First of all, I'm not going to go into the details of this, but it makes much better sense of the Greek grammar. And if you're interested in that, I will, I will show you what I mean. Second, since elders are granted authority to govern the affairs of the church and therefore have authority over the ministry of deacons, why would Paul lay requirements on the wives of deacons and yet lay no requirements on the wives of elders at all? He doesn't even mention the wives of elders. It just doesn't make sense that he would call for more from the wives of deacons than he would from the wives of elders. And so it seems much more logical to take Paul in verse 11 as transitioning to talk about women who are actually in a position of leadership, serving as deacons. And this makes all the more sense when you see what he calls for from these people. Look what he wants from them in verse 11. He says they also must be dignified. They must be respectable women. They must have a good reputation, in other words. They cannot be given to slander. Rather, they must display a sober mind. They cannot be gossipers and busybodies. They have to be clear thinkers and clear speakers. And finally, they have to be faithful in all things. Now, of course, these things ought to characterize every believer. But when you rise to leadership, these types of traits are extremely important. Let me just take the issue of slander. If I as an individual person slander somebody, that's one thing. But if I as a pastor use my speech to slander someone, that's a whole other thing. It hits everybody at a whole other level. It comes with a different authority. It comes with a sharper point to the sword. It's a bigger problem. If you're going to put someone in leadership, they need to be someone who knows how to have lordship over their tongue. And I think when you look at the three things Paul is calling for here, it's pretty clear that he's saying as a leader... Women need to attend to these things because they're going to be important for leadership. And if they're not skilled in these particular things, not only they, but the whole church is going to pay a price for that. Third, since Paul does not call on deacons to teach or to exercise governing authority, he's not contradicting his words in chapter 2, verse 12. So if you'll just turn back in your Bible and look at chapter 2, verse 12, I just want to read the first part of that verse. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. We don't have time to go into great depth about what's going on there, but basically what Paul is forbidding women to do is occupy the office of elder. 
He's not saying that no woman can teach in any context. He's not saying that. And if we had time, I would show you that. In other places, he, he celebrates women who prophesy in the life of the church, which is a ministry of the word in the life of the church. But he is saying that a woman may not occupy that office that has governing teaching authority in it that is setting the, the direction in the context of the whole life of the church. Since those things are not required of deacons, then it makes sense that this office would be open to women. The very things that are forbidden for women in the life of the church, and by the way, they're also forbidden for most men. The elders in the life of the church are frankly just a handful of men in any church at any time in history. So it's not just women that are being singled out here, but the things that a woman cannot do, namely occupy the office of an elder, that's actually what's forbidden from a deacon. And so the office is open I think, to women, and so does Tom Schreiner and a number of others think that as well. Fourth, you don't have to turn there because this is going to go by quickly, but you might want to note this. In Romans 16, 1 through 2, Paul speaks of a woman named Phoebe, and it seems pretty clear to me that she serves as a deacon. So here's what he wrote. He wrote, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her and whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So in verse 1, Paul calls her a servant, but in Greek, that word is deacon. And it probably, I think it ought to be translated as deacon. Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. And the reason I think that is because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that she was just a, a, a servant of the church in some general way. She was being sent by Paul from wherever he was in prison she was being sent to Rome, and Paul is writing to the church there saying, receive her. She's a good woman, and in fact, help her. Anything she needs, help her, because she has been a patron of many ministries. What does that mean? That means she's been funding people's ministries, including Paul's. She has been funding people so that they would be freed up for prayer and for the ministry of the word and for the governance of the church. Many Romans scholars think that Phoebe's the one who delivered the letter of the Romans to the church in Rome. And it just makes much more sense if we see her as an official emissary from Paul to the church, that she was not just a servant in a general way, but actually a deacon in the life of the church. And then finally, there's one more argument that bears less authority because I'm now going outside of the scripture, but it's still important. In the one or two generations after the apostles, we have an enormous amount of writings preserved from that era, from the early church. And we see in a number of places in the writings of the early church fathers that they appointed women to serve as deacons. Now, their practices aren't authoritative for every church at every time. They also did other things that I don't think are necessarily um, biblical. But it does help us understand how they were interpreting the scripture. And from the first generation after the apostles passed off, we already have a letter where it's clear that women were serving as deacons in the life of the church. So for these reasons, it has long been the position of Glory of Christ Fellowship that we will appoint women deacons. We don't do that lightly. We've taken a long time to pour over the word together, and this is our position. Over the years, We've asked a number of women to serve as deacons. None of them have been willing to do so. Most of that just because of circumstances. In one case, there was a woman who didn't feel um, that a woman should serve as a deacon, so she had a she had a, a objection of conscience, you could say. And I would never try to pressure anybody into serving as a deacon if they don't think that they should. 
But be that as it may, in these days, we're praying that God will raise up both men and women to serve in the office of deacon in the life of this church. Even as God raises up two or more elders in 2020, we're praying that God will raise up two or more deacons in the life of the church. And we want to strongly encourage you to pray along those lines. We want to strongly encourage you to pray for your own heart. Maybe God is putting his hand upon you to say, I want you to serve in this role. So with that, I want to just quickly address one more question and then I'll pray. The question is, what do deacons do? And I don't have a lot to say about this because the Bible says almost nothing about it. What does it look like to deke? I think Dave has said to me many times. I don't know what deking looks like because Dave's one of our two deacons right now. He's like, what's deking look like? Well, the Bible, honestly, it says almost nothing about this. So you have to sort of read carefully, prayerfully, and, and come up with something. So here's where we're at, and I think we're on pretty safe ground here. I've already said it. Deacons serve the Lord and his church by attending to the pastoral and practical needs of the church under the authority of the elders. Deacons do whatever they have to do to free up the elders to pray, teach, and govern. That's what they do. The heart of service is in them, and the, the, the heart of, of, of their life is to say, Pastor, what can I do to make your job easier? What can I do to take weight off of you so that you can focus and lead us and give all your time and give all your energy in the things that God has given? And together, the elders and the deacons work to serve the purposes of God in the life of the church. The deacons are under the authority of elders, but the elders are not superior. We're working as a team, and together we serve the purposes of God in the life of the church. So this means that deacons could do all sorts of things. Deacons could engage in conflict mediation, they could engage in biblical counseling. They could engage in recruitment and training and mobilization of people. In other words, administering the leadership life of the church. They could engage in administration, like the office sort of side of, of church life. They could engage in supervision. They could engage in general assistance. There are some deacons I've known in the past that didn't have a, a lot of real specificity about what they did. They were just sort of a, a, a roustabout, we used to call them in the construction trade, just someone who would do anything and go anywhere and just gladly do what they were told to do. Deacons can do a lot of things, but I think the thing we have to understand is their heart is to free up the elders so that together we can serve the purposes of the church. So, this leads to another issue that we've struggled with quite a bit, and that is then, how do you distinguish between a person who's a deacon and a person who's not a deacon? There are lots of folks in the life of this church who have this heart of service. What makes that person a deacon and that person not a deacon? And that's a very hard question to answer. But our answers are simple. First of all, when we think deacon, we want to see somebody who's giving leadership to a particular area of life in the church. So Dave Fergus is in my light of line of sight right now so I'm thinking of him he is over the financial life of our church the intake part of the life of our church he also teaches the membership class he does all kinds of other things too but he in a sense is the deacon over that part of our financial life there are people who, who don't just serve in some general way but they're actually giving energy and leadership to a particular ministry in the church and then the second thing is they feel a sense of calling so they have a specific focus they're actually leading in the church they're not just serving as a member of a team, but they're actually leading a team, and they have a sense of calling. Maybe that sense of calling comes from their own intuition as they seek the Lord, or maybe that sense of calling comes as the elders come knocking on their door saying, brother or sister, we've been praying about this and seeking the Lord. We think you're a deacon. 
And the heart of a deacon is to say, well, if that's what the Lord is saying to me through you, perhaps that's what I am. So that doesn't clear up all the gray, but that's where we're at. We want deacons who are giving leadership to a portion of the life of the church and who have a sense of calling on their lives. For those who don't feel a particular sense of calling and still want to serve in leadership at this church, there is a way to do that. We have a third level of leadership. So we have elders, we have deacons, and then we have what we call the gold team. And that was just something somebody came up with lots of years ago, but it just uh, stands for Glory of Christ Ongoing Leadership Development. And people who are not elders or deacons but are leading some kind of team in the life of the church are automatically on the gold team. We meet four times a year and sometimes we consult outside of our normal meetings. But the, uh, the idea for us is that that gold team is part of our mechanism for developing uh, deacons and, and elders. We want everybody on the gold team to take their leadership point, uh, position seriously and to be praying about the further God, calling of God upon their lives. So what distinguishes deacons from other people on the gold team? Well, it's hard to say. It's just that they're giving leadership and they're willing and, and feel a, a calling on their lives to actually serve as a deacon. So I will say this to you. In the coming days, Pastor Kevin and I, we will be going from one person to another saying, brother or sister, we've been praying and we think you're a deacon or we think you're an elder. Would you please pray about that? And here's what I want to say to you. Please take seriously when we come knocking on your door because we may or may not be right about our sense of God's calling on your life, but then again, we, we may be right. Our list is probably not God's list exactly, but then again, as we have sought the Lord and fasted and prayed, it's more than possible that God would put specific names on our life so that he is speaking to you through the voice of your spiritual shepherds. And I would never, ever want to pressure or manipulate someone into coming into an office, but I'm, all I'm saying is when the call comes to you, somebody calls your number, please take that seriously. Please pray about it. So for all of us, I just want to close today by calling us to prayer. I told you before that even as Pastor Kevin and I begin to go visiting people after the turn of the year, our heart is that God will have already knocked on the doors of their hearts before we knock on the doors of their homes. We want people to rise up into the office of elder and of deacon because God has called them, not just because we're recruiting them. So I'm asking all of you, man, woman, and child, all of us, pray. And even if God puts it on your heart, fast and pray. Beg the Lord to raise up the right men and the right women to lead us into the future because I believe that as we come into alignment with the structure and the purposes of God for the church, we will begin to bear more and more and more fruit. So let me pray now that God will help us, and I commend you again. Please, in the coming days, pray along with us. Father, I thank you so much for being clear with us about the way you want your church family structured. I thank you so much that Christ is the head of the church. I thank you so much that the apostles, even though they pass from this earth, still exercise authority in the life of the church through the New Testament mainly. I thank you, Father, that there are evangelists and prophets as well functioning in the church in a variety of ways. I thank you that you have given every local church the call to have elders and to have deacons. And I pray, Father, that you would help us in these days as we seek to appoint more. In the past, Father, you've been so gracious to us and a number of people have served this church so well for the glory of your name and the common good. I am so deeply grateful to you for that, but it's a new day now. It's a new season now and we need fresh leadership and fresh calling. So please, Father, by your spirit, work in your people and raise up leaders for the glory of your name. For what you will do, Father, for how you will do it, I give you my thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty name.
Amen.